You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 will be beginning in verse 7 here in just a few moments. But uh, a few years ago, I introduced to you this little motto, this little phrase, glorify, grow, give. Uh, it's on the bracelet that I have on today. Some of you, I know, still continue to wear those bracelets. I've got to get some more ordered, and I'll get that done this week. And uh, But it was just a little simple motto that I introduced to us as a church to sort of uh, be something that kind of overarches everything we do, that we want to glorify God in everything we do individually and collectively as a church, that uh, we want to ask God to grow us uh, spiritually, individually, to mature us, but uh, to also grow his kingdom in this place, and, and then to give. We give of our time and our talents, and we give of our treasures, and uh, just in various different ways. So every January, what I like to do is to take three Sundays and revisit these three words uh, from different passages, and sometimes even from different perspectives in the Scripture. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to glorify God coming out of 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, If I were to ask you the question, or if someone else were to ask you the question, what's the purpose of being saved? Probably we would get answers like this. Well, I get to go to heaven instead of going to hell. That's a pretty big one. I, I get that. We might get answers like, well, God promises to give me a better life, and some people a better life is a richer life. Some people, a better life is a healthier life. Some people, a better life is an easier life. Like, better is just arbitrary in that, in that language. And, and certainly, we benefit from God's salvation. Certainly, God does things for us, like rescue us from the penalty of sin and the penalty of hell. But understand that when when we say those kinds of things in response to the question, what is the purpose of God saving us, what we're doing in a very subtle way is we're making salvation about us and not about him. God has a purpose in gifting salvation to men that is far greater than any of those things that I just mentioned. When we just went through the Christmas season, and you may have given a gift to your kids or your grandkids or someone else in your family or a friend, and yes, you may have known, uh, they may have made you a list, and you may have known three or four things that they wanted, but when it came right down to it, you as the gift giver did something sacrificially in order that they might receive that gift, meaning the, the exchange of the gift really was about you more so than it was about them receiving it. So when we talk about the gift of salvation, we talk about what God does in saving us, we've got to be really careful that we don't begin to make it about ourselves. God saves people because he's God and he seeks his glory. Just think through Old Testament times, right? He, he calls out to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and this great people begin to, to come from Abraham's lineage, and then they find themselves in slavery and in Egypt, and God comes to their rescue, right? And in all of those plagues and all those miracles, what is God saying to Moses and to Pharaoh when he's doing those things? I'm doing these things to show you how great I am. I'm doing these things so that I would receive honor. 
When, we, when they come out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea and the, the people see the Pharaoh's army behind them and they start to panic. At least in Egypt we had graves to die in. What does God say? Tell them, he says to Moses, tell them that what they're about to see is going to astound them and I will receive glory for defeating Pharaoh. Even after Moses goes the first time, right, to, to get the Ten Commandments from the mountain, he comes down and, and they've made the golden calf and they're worshiping around it. Like what Exodus tells us in that passage is that God's anger began to burn and he began to want to pour out his wrath on these people that he just rescued. And Moses intercedes for the people of Israel with God, but here's how Moses does it. He does it by appealing to God's glory. He does it by appealing to God's honor, which glory is just a, a high state of honor. And he says to God, you would pull them out of Egypt just to wipe them out? Is that, is that what you want, God? Is that the glory that you want for the nations around us to say, yeah, he rescued them, but then he just destroyed them? And because Moses appeals to God on that perspective, on his honor, on his glory, God relents in that moment. And so what we want to talk about today is this issue of what does it mean for us to be saved? What does it mean for anyone to be saved? And Paul's going to walk us through this in a, in a method, in an uh, understanding that there's a difference between two covenants. There's a difference between old covenant and old glory and the new covenant in Christ and the new glory that comes with it. So if you want to follow along with me, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning verse 7, we're going to go all the way through verse 15 to start. Paul writes, the old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glorious was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold we're not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. And so our first point today is this. There was an old covenant with old glory. Paul takes the, the church at Corinth, takes us back into a trip, uh, a trip back into time with these verses and begins to talk about this old covenant or the old way. Some of the translations use this kind of phrasing, that there was a ministry or administration of death. And he, he does this in such a way to begin to highlight some comparisons between the two. <clears throat> I think it's really interesting that Paul does this for this purpose. Number one, in Corinth was a city that was assembled of Jew and Gentile alike. 
In Acts 18, uh, Paul goes to Corinth and he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And Luke tells us in Acts 18 that they were there in Corinth because Claudius had begun to expel all the Jews out of the city of Rome. And so Paul goes there, he meets them, and Acts 18 verse 4 says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jew and Greek, or both Jew and Gentile. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, Paul's talking there about the, the cross and how it's foolish to people who don't understand it. And he says, it's foolish to the Jews for they ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks or to the Gentiles because they seek human wisdom. And so when we preach Christ crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. I, I say it's interesting that Paul does this because understand the Greek or the Gentile would not have known the story of the Exodus well. They didn't grow up with that. They didn't grow up having that handed down to them either through teachings or through just sharing of, of, of the stories of God through their family members. And so one of the things I think that's interesting here is that Paul in using this Essentially, there's an implication here that he uses a decidedly Jewish piece of history and, and, and is under the impression that both Jew and Gentile alike will understand what he's talking about. What that means is that somewhere along the line, somebody was telling these Greeks and these Gentiles in Corinth the old stories of God. Now, I say that's interesting for this purpose as a little side note. As we begin to think about evangelism this year, and as we begin to, to focus more on it, and I'll begin to challenge you more on it, and even offer up some training in it, understand this, like it or not, we are decidedly in a post-Christian culture. And we cannot walk out of these, these buildings, we cannot walk into other places in our lives and assume that our neighbors... And our cross-the-street neighbors and the kids that go to school with our kids and the people that we work alongside of and the people that we recreate with, we cannot assume any longer that they know the stories. We cannot assume any longer that if you bring up Noah or Joseph or, or Jacob or anything from the Old Testament, even in some cases really even anything coming from the New Testament about Jesus himself, we cannot assume any longer that these people are going to say, oh yeah, I've heard of that before which means our evangelism is going to have to be patient and our evangelism is going to have to be thorough and we're going to be required to do what it said in Acts 18 that he was doing in Corinth, that he was reasoning with them in the temple, in the synagogue. We will, will likely not reason as much inside here, but we are called to do it outside of here. And so Paul takes this very Jewish historical issue of the old covenant and begins to work through comparisons and look at the things that he compares look at verses 7 and 8 again the old way with laws etched in stone led to death and then look at verse 8 shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the holy spirit is giving life Paul says the old covenant, the old way, the, the old law that was etched in stone that, gave, that Moses received, that brought down to the people of Israel, it led to death. Listen, this is a big deal for Paul to say. Because no self-respecting Jewish person in his time, and particularly no self-respecting Jewish person like Paul, who had studied, who was a Pharisee, who was considered a leader at one point in his time, would have said the old way led to death. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus is dealing with some of those Jews, and they're wanting to basically kill him because they are accusing him of blasphemy. And so he launches into this big teaching point with them. And right in the middle of it, in John 5, 39, he makes this statement to them. You search the scriptures because you think they give you life. This is a big deal for Paul in this comparison to say the old way brought death. But this new covenant, this new way in Christ Jesus, it brings life. He makes a comparison in verse 9 of condemnation versus commendation. Look there again at verse 9. He says, if the old way which brings condemnation, in other words, if the old, the old way which really reveals to us how sinful we really are and condemns us for our sin... If that way was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? He compares condemnation under the law versus commendation or acceptance or being made right with God under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And he talks about them being temporary versus permanent. Look at 10 and 11 again. In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way which has been replaced, temporary, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever permanent? I'm going to revisit this several times today. But the idea of glory is that it is a high state of honor. It is a high state of, of attributing honor to someone. It's putting them in a very, very uh, uh, high pedestal, if you will, above and over everything else. Now, there are some places in our scriptures where we see the English word glory, and it has a little different nuance to it. When uh, the devil tempts um, Jesus, as recorded in Matthew 4, and he says, uh, put, takes him on the mountaintop and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He's talking about the attributes of those kingdoms. He's talking about what those kingdoms held, the geographical areas and the, uh, maybe the streams and the rivers and the trees and so on and so forth. That's the kind of glory he's defining. Uh, in Matthew 6, uh, he's talking about the lilies of the field, and he says Solomon in all his glory was, was clothed even greater than them. Or, or was not clothed, clothed as great as them. Their glory is talking about an issue of beauty or an attribute of beauty. But when glory is talked about in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, in reference to God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it is honor. And it is not just honor in just a very simple way. It is honor in that you put him above everything else in your life. And so Paul is stating through all these comparisons, yes, there was an honor and a glory that came with the old way. But that has been clearly superseded. That has been clearly surpassed by the new glory we now have in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. We'll return to glory a little bit later. Well, not return to glory but you know what I'm saying we might who knows right sorry trail um so from this then Paul describes this old covenant new covenant comparison in this way he describes the old covenant as basically being ineffective look at verses 12 through 15 again since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. 
Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. He pulls again from Exodus 34 this time. And this is, this is the second time that Moses goes upon the mountain and receives the new tablets of stone this time because uh, the other ones were broken when he came down and found all the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. So he goes back up on the mountain. He sees God a second time. He gets uh, new tablets and his presence with himself changes because he was in the presence of God. Exodus 34 beginning verse 29 says that when he came back down from the mountain, his face was radiating God's glory. So much so that the people of Israel were scared and would not approach Moses. And so he gives them instruction. He finally calms them. He gives them instruction. And then when he's done giving them the instruction of the Lord, the scriptures in Exodus 34 say, he takes a veil and he puts it over his face so that they cannot see the glory of the Lord any longer. And what Exodus 34 goes on to say is basically it just goes through a cycle for Moses. When he goes into the presence of God, he removes the veil. He sees God face to face. He receives and radiates all God's glory. When he delivers the word of God, he radiates God's glory. But when he's done doing those instructional pieces, he then covers his face up again. And so Paul moves here from that historical piece of what Moses does, and he takes what from a physical veil, and he begins talking about a spiritual veil. This is something that Paul does quite often in his writings, moves from a physical example to a spiritual example. And he does this there again in verse 14. Look at it again with me. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their mind so they cannot understand the truth. Their minds were hardened means that they were in a condition where they are closed off to the truth. They're dull to the truth. And and there's a place in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus feeds the 4,000 with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And shortly after he does that, the disciples in a different location begin arguing because between the 12 of them and Jesus, they only have one loaf of bread. And Jesus' response to them, among other things, is this in Mark 8, 17. Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? The same kind of language here that Jesus uses is the same kind of language that Paul is describing here in 2 Corinthians 3. That there's a hardness, there's a stubbornness, there's a dullness. To to the disciples, Jesus is saying, I just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves. Do you not think I could take care of the 12 of you with one? But they were shut off. They were hardened. They could not see the truth in that moment. And so here what Paul is saying, because of their minds being hardened, Israel could not fully receive the glory of God in the time of Moses. But what he also says is it still happens today in his time and I would dare say to you it still happens today in our time the hardening of the mind is not just a refusal uh, to acknowledge it's it's a refusal to be obedient to the word of God it's a refusal to when the word of God begins to make sense just to harden ourselves uh, to to acknowledge what we what God has done for us and again this is important for us evangelistically this is why I chose this passage cuz look how he ends verse 14 and this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ uh, there's there's some wonderful um, sharing your faith options out there 
in my plan this year is to show you about three or four of them over a, a span of time and teachings times and, and whichever ones you know line up with you or you feel most comfortable with, those are the ones I hope that you'll begin to use. But some of them I know that are out there that begin with the Ten Commandments. Here's the Ten Commandments and here's where we fall short of God and now don't you think you need Jesus? And what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 3 is this, both for those and then I believe applicable now to the entire Word of God. That when you just present that to somebody as evidence that they should believe, unless they have turned to Christ, they do not understand. You, 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 can, you can argue the Bible till you're blue in the face with someone who is yet unconverted. And they will not understand. Because what Paul says is the veil, the spiritual veil uh, that, that deals with the hardening of the mind, that's only removed when they turn to Christ. Now, some people may be a little uncomfortable when I say that Paul's teaching that the old covenant or the old way was ineffective, and I'll, I want to address that for just a few moments. When I say it was ineffective or Paul's teaching that's ineffective, it's in reference to it being able to save a person. The law given by God was purely and fully effective to its purpose. In another letter, Paul says this in Romans 7, am I suggesting the law of God is sinful? Of course not. The fact is the law showed me my sin, which was its purpose. He says, I would have not known what coveting was or that it was wrong if the law had not, had not said, do not covet. So the law fulfills its purpose. It's excellent in its purpose. But the issue was not the problem with the law. The issue is with us. He goes on in Romans seven fourteen to say, The trouble is not with the law. It is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. And so because the old covenant was ineffective, because the old covenant uh, without Jesus, there remains this veil of understanding. Because of all of that, and because the problem is with us, there had to be another way to be saved. And of course, we know on this side of history that that person was Jesus. That the way of being saved was through the cross of Jesus Christ, through faith and trust and belief in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we, we got out of Hebrews last year, and I'm not going to go back and revisit it, but I would encourage you this week in conjunction with what we're reading out of 2 Corinthians 3 today to go back and read Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 this week and see where the writer of Hebrews makes these same arguments. The old covenant, it fulfilled its purpose, but it couldn't save. All it did was remind people every year of the sin in their life. But when Jesus came and died one death for all time, for all people, that new covenant then superseded the old. That new covenant then brought new glory, which is the second point for us today. Old covenant, old glory, new covenant, new glory. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. Paul says, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. I think there are three things that Paul brings to mind here. In, this, in these little verses about what happens under the new covenant. The first is in verse 16, that we receive comprehension 
and compliance. Look again at what he says. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In the preceding verses, what did Paul say? When they read the words of Moses, <clears throat> for, our, for our time, we would go back and say when they read the, anything out of the word of God, there's a spiritual veil that remains on people who, who have not turned to Christ. But when they turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. There becomes a comprehension of even the law of God. I, I've said a few times uh, from, the, from this area that um, Gabriel is very sort of rules regimented and rules oriented. And um, so if you're ever driving and Gabriel's in the car, he's going to let you know if you're going over the speed limit. Um, just the other day, he said, Dad, the, you went over on the yellow line in the middle a little bit. Yes, Gabriel, I know. Yes. But the other day, we were going to Shelbyville for his appointment, and he said something pretty profound. And I know he doesn't even know how profound it was, and maybe when he's older, I'll share it with him. But uh, we were on on I-64 heading west, and we were in that area where it switches to 55 right there by the hospital because of all the construction, you know. And so I I marked my cruise control down to 58. I'm not going to lie to you. I went to 58. But even at 58, you know what was going on, right? Zoom, 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 like just being passed like we're sitting still. And Gabriel said something that he says often. He said, he said, they just don't pay attention to the law, do they? I said, no, son, they're not paying attention to the law. And this is what he said that was profound. He said, they don't understand that the law is trying to keep them safe. And see, when, when, you, when we ask somebody to read the word of God, and to understand it and acknowledge it in their life, and they haven't turned to Christ, they don't understand God's laws are trying to keep them safe. They see laws about sexual immorality. They see laws about drunkenness. They see laws about uh, filthy language. They see laws about rude behavior and anger. and all. They see all that as ways to, to try to keep them down. They don't understand that all of God's word is designed to keep them safe. It's because they still have that spiritual veil. But when they come to Christ, Paul says, whenever someone turns to the Lord, verse 16, the veil is taken away. Now compliance comes into play. Now by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're able to live to God's word. Now comprehension comes into play. Now the veil is removed and they're able to understand it. But look at the two actions there in verse 16. Whenever one turns to the Lord, which implies a human action, The veil is taken away, which implies a spiritual action. Only the Spirit of God can reverse the spiritual blindness. Let me me give you another example. In Luke 24, in Luke's gospel, Jesus appears to the disciples, and it says it this way in verse 44. He said, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he sets the the stage, right? He says, when I was with you before, I told you all the scriptures, right? But then Luke says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Only the Spirit of God gives comprehension, Only the Spirit of God gives compliance. And so when we go out and we we try to force people or we try to just just hit them with a a verse or two here or there or something here and there without also bathing that person and bathing that situation in continual prayer that the Spirit of God would come and do a work in their life, we may as well be having them read a manual on how to fix their car. 
Because God's word holds power and holds comprehension and gives compliance when they have turned to the Lord. I think it's so fascinating. There are two great veils represented in scripture. One, the spiritual veil that's represented here. And two, the veil or sometimes called the curtain in the temple that separated God's presence from everyone except the high holy priest. Both of those veils are torn down in Jesus. Not by religious living, not by, not by how good or moral a person is, not by any of that. Both of those things are torn down in Jesus. So we get compliance, we get comprehension. Secondly, verse 17, we get freedom. For the Lord is the Spirit, he writes in verse 17, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, uh, we can rightly say, I think, that we get free, set free from sin and the power of sin. We get set free from the law. We get set free from the judgment of God. We get set free from uh, the condemnation of God. We get set free from trying to have to impress God. We get set free from all of those things. But here, most importantly in this context, I believe what Paul is saying is we are set free to fully experience the glory of God. Every day in your life and mine. Look, at, look again back to verse 13. We are not like Moses. And what did Moses have to do? Well, I experienced and I radiate the glory of God for a little while, but then I got to cover it up. He says, we are not like Moses. And then by, by extrapolation, we're not like the people of Israel. We can fully embrace the freedom, uh, the, the experience of God's glory in our lives all the time because we have been made free to do so. Now, the reality is we may look at that and go, well, you know, I just don't really feel like I experience that all the time. Well, I, I just have to be straight up with you then. Then that means you or I are putting some kind of veil back in the place of the one that was removed. The veil of religion, the veil of hypocrisy, the veil of sin, the veil of anger, the veil of pride, the veil of self-righteousness, the veil of, of having an ignorance of God's word. All of those things will inhibit our freedom that Paul says we have through the Spirit of God to fully experience the glory of God. And then lastly, and this is where we really get into the glorified peace today, verse 18, the third thing that happens, he says, is we receive the glory of God in order to glorify God. Look at verse 18 again. So all of us who've had that veil removed, brother and sister in Christ, every person, man, woman, boy, girl who has had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. He begins by saying, so all of us, and again, it's a direct comparison. Only Moses could see the glory of the Lord in the Exodus. Only, the, only the, the high, most high priest could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the synagogue, and be in the presence of the Lord. But the spiritual veil has been torn, and, and the veil in the temple has been torn, releasing God's presence to all. And so all of us can receive and radiate God's glory in our lives. Last week from Second Peter, I talked about how we're living stones, holy and royal priests. This is supplementing that teaching from last week. All of us, 
Every single one of you here today, every single one of you today watching or watching at a later date who are in Christ have the ability to do what? To receive and to radiate God's glory. Because look at what he says. All of us who've had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. It's interesting in that Exodus passage that when Moses comes down from the second time, verse 29 says he was unaware that he was radiating God's glory. He didn't know his face was shining until somebody else told him. But Paul here presents a, bit, a very different way. Some of your translations say uh, instead of seeing and reflecting, it's beholding as in a mirror or looking as in a mirror. It's a word that means contemplating or a deep gaze, not just a casual glance. Uh, but I want you to see what Paul's getting at here with this language. He, he's getting at the fact that Moses, who had been in the presence of God, didn't know that his face was reflecting the glory of God until somebody else told him. But now we who are in Christ can look in the presence of God and radiate and reflect the presence of God as if we were looking in a mirror. You grasp that? You get that? We are not like Moses who has to cover it up. We're not like Moses who just gets it periodically. What Paul is saying is in Christ, as we gaze, as we contemplate into that mirror, that spiritual mirror, what God does is he gives us and we are able to receive and then radiate back his very glory and his very honor. And that's the way he phrases it at the end of the verse. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Let me tell you something. God is serious about his glory. He is serious about his honor. In Isaiah 48, um, Israel is once again in exile, and um, God is raising up King Cyrus to be able to come in and to overthrow Babylon so that Israel might be saved and brought out and rescued once again. Um, but in Isaiah 48, when, when God's talking through Isaiah to the people of Israel, he, he talks early in that chapter, and he talks about that he had gone to Israel in times past and told them, I'm getting ready to do this, and then he did it. And he says specifically in the early parts of Isaiah 48, I did it that way because I didn't want you to give the credit to those idols you had fashioned. I did it that way. I told you what I was getting ready to do, and then I did it because I didn't want you to think that the idols of stone or wood or whatever else you had fashioned while you had departed from me were accomplishing my work. And he caps it off in Isaiah 48, 11 by saying this, My glory I will not share with idols. Some of the translations say it this way, My glory I will not share with another. God is serious about his glory. But listen to this. What Paul is saying here is that he shares his glory with all who trust in Christ. He is serious about not giving his honor away or not sharing it with anybody else or anything else. But to those who have trusted in Christ, who the veil has been removed, it says, read, read the end of it again. The Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. 
And lest you think that this is just one piece in the scripture that talks about this, I'm going to show you four other references today where we get the same kind of teaching. They should be up on the screen for you, and I'll read them for you as well. In John 13, 31 through 32, Jesus says this. As Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Okay, so there's a progression here. Jesus tells the disciples, God's giving me his glory that I may in turn glorify him, and this is how it's going to happen. And so just a couple of chapters later in John's gospel, in chapter 17, we have this prayer of Jesus. And verse 1 says this, After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to the heavens and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. So again, it's a very similar phrasing of what we just read in John 13. Jesus, the Son, is expecting the glory of the Father that he might then in turn glorify the Father by his actions, specifically going to the cross and then being resurrected. But then look at John 17, 20 through 22. He spent some time praying for the disciples. And then verse 20 says this, I'm praying not only for these disciples, so not only for the ones that were in the room with him, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. There's a hint. That's y'all. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and that they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. And then here we go, verse 22. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Let's move on. In another letter of Paul's in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For God knew his people in advance and chose them to become, his, like his, to become like his son. So what does that mean? For you to receive glory. That his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given, him the, given them right standing, he gave them his glory. And then lastly, out of the book of Ephesians 1, 12 through 15, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, that's y'all, who've also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, he identifies you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and he's purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. That's just a smattering of verses in the New Testament that teach this same thing over and over and over again. That God the Father, who does not share his glory with anyone else, who does not share his glory with any other God, any other idol, any other person, shares his glory with God the Son because they are one, whom the Son then says, I'm sharing my glory with everybody who's going to believe in me for the purpose that they might glorify you. Warren Wiersbe says this in his commentary on this passage. This verse, verse 18, is the climax of the chapter. And it presents a truth so exciting, I marvel that so many believers have missed it or ignored it. You and I 
can share the image of Jesus Christ and go from glory to glory. Not just when we die. That's the ultimate glorification that we're going to receive at the resurrection one day. That's the glorified body that's going to join up with the already glorified spirit. You and I can receive and reflect and radiate the glory of God. And how can we know this for sure? Well, outside even of the scriptures saying it, we can know it for sure in this way. I've said to you, God, he wants his glory. He's deserving of his glory. And because he wants his glory and because he's deserving of his glory, you can rest assured that he will go through on the promise of giving you his glory. That he might what? Receive glory. I would say to you this as we begin to close. And I want to say this very carefully. I don't, I don't ever discount or dismiss true issues of anxiety or true issues of, of, of issues for people when they, you know, something genetics off or something chromosomally off or whatever the case may be. But I, I got to say this to be true to the word today. There are times Christians brothers and sisters, that we go through low self-esteem or sometimes we, we struggle with our identity and who, I, who am I? Am I really fulfilling my role? Or am I really doing this? Am I really doing that? I would say to you that, that my belief is this, that when we're in those moments, it's because we're glorifying something other than him. Like you, you put an earthly relationship over God the Father, that's glorifying him. And when that earthly relationship falls... You don't feel good, do you? You put a career over God the Father, that's glorifying your career. And when that career falls or doesn't fulfill you as you thought it would be, you fall, don't you? It doesn't feel good. Anytime we who are in Christ put anything else over and above God, we're glorifying that over and above God. But so long as we are seeking God only, God, first and foremost, so long as we are seeking our lives to be what the scriptures have said today, to glorify him, I think we see in that mirror clearly. We see not who we think we are, but we see who God knows we are. And we not only see who God knows we are, we see what we can become in Christ. Ben Witherington, a professor and scholar at Asbury University here in Kentucky, wrote a book called We Have Seen His Glory, A Vision of Kingdom Worship. And he says this as I close. As we glorify God, God, who is ever the giving self-sacrificial God, is conforming us to the image of his Son. And we are changed into that image from glory to glory. Glorifying God is the means of our transformation into Christ's image. You see that cycle that Ben just said? We glorify God, God gives us more glory. We glorify God, God makes us more like his son. The more like we're, his son we're made, the more we do what? We glorify God. And over and over and over and over and over. If you want to become more like Jesus in this new year of 2023... You glorify God. You give him the highest state and place of honor in your life 
over and above everything and everyone. And watch him pour his glory back into you that you may radiate it and reflect it to others. Veil fully removed. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.